Now it's on the recording. Now everyone's going to say, oh shoot. Also, ladies, one more time. If you please close the covers of the cookie jar, please. Small gets stale and gross. Thank you very much. Now the people on the internet will know about the stale gross cookies. That's so embarrassing. Now they know that if they're coming to my note, it has to be for the Torah, not for the accommodations. <laughs> You're editing this, right? Afterwards? No, we are no? not. Okay. It's not my responsibility. You can pause it and restart. You can pause it and restart. Can we, can we pause it and restart? Yeah. Because you're afraid yeah, that everyone's going to hear you say shoot? No, I mean, it's fine. They'll just know that I get Stella in orange. <laughs> but they didn't know that until now, but now they know. <laughs> Today. That that reminds me. That reminds me. A friend of mine who's a rabbi. Um, he came home and one of his children clearly eaten several cookies from the cookie jar that he was not supposed to. And so he asked his son, um, "Why did you eat the cookies?" And he says, "I didn't do it. You was in the mikvah when I didn't do it." <laughs> Sometimes it's better keep your mouth <laughs> Okay. None of that has anything to pertain to the class. We're going to talk about Yom Kippur because there was a request to have a second Yom Kippur class. Because one day of Yom Kippur is not enough. When we're learning about Yom Kippur anyway. So, um, there is a teaching of our holy sages. May their memory be a blessing. Literally, it's more than a men should be a blessing, but whatever. Okay. And our sages tell us as follows. That if somebody fails to do a positive mitzvah and they do tshuva, they do not move from the spot that they are in before Hashem has forgiven them. What does that mean? So let us think of an example. Let us say... Um, a positive mitzvah would be the mitzvah to light Shabbos candles. Let's say that a person does not light Shabbos candles. And then, it's already too late, they can't light the Shabbos candles. Why would they can't light the Shabbos candles? Anyone know? Because it's desecrating Shabbos. Because desecrating Shabbos, right? It's very important that the Shabbos candles be lit prior to Shabbos. Okay. So now they can't do the mitzvah. At the moment they do tshuva, Hashem immediately forgives them. So if let's say they're walking down the street, before they take the next step after that change of heart, Hashem has already forgiven them. It's a nice deal, right? On the other hand, if a person has violated a negative mitzvah, what would be an example of violating a negative mitzvah? They lit the Shabbos candles, but when do they light them? After dark. Well, even earlier actually. They lit them after sunset. At that point, they have violated a negative mitzvah. And at that point, even if they do tshuva, the atonement, the cleansing of the sin is held in suspension until Yom Kippur. Can you repeat what you said before? God is not failed to do If they fail to a then the moment they do tshuva, they don't move from that spot before God has forgiven them. Meaning, if God forgives them right away. But if you violated a negative mitzvah, then, even though you've done tshuva, the, that is held in suspension until Yom Kippur, and at that point, Hashem cleanses away the sin. 
Now, if we were to take that statement of our sages at face value, what would seem to be the more serious issue? The failure to perform a positive mitzvah or the violation of a negative mitzvah? Negative mitzvah. Negative mitzvah, why? Because you have to wait until Yom Kippur. Yeah. You have to wait until Yom Kippur. If you have to wait until Yom Kippur, it means your truth is not good enough. This is wrong. As many things in Judaism, they appear to be one thing or actually something else entirely. If Yom Kippur can cleanse away the sin, what does that imply about the sin? It's something that can be corrected. But if you fail to perform a positive mitzvah, you can't go back and do the mitzvah. The opportunity for that mitzvah has been lost. In other words, in every transgression, in every sin, there's really two distinct elements. There is um, the fact that the person has gone against the will of God, meaning the idea that a person has thrown off the yoke of heaven, they've disregarded Hashem's authority, um, they've rebelled against Hashem, well, however you want to put it. That's one issue. And that's an independent issue from what they did or didn't do. But then there's also the fact that they did or didn't do something. And if they failed to do something, that positive thing did not occur. And if they transgressed something, something negative happened. Now, if something negative happens, something is broken, there's always the possibility of repairing it afterwards. But if something that could have happened didn't happen and the opportunity is gone, well, that's just a missed opportunity. So regarding the issue of Hashem's forgiveness, if you do tshuva, Hashem forgives you because Hashem doesn't hold grudges. If you do tshuva and Hashem forgives you, that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that the problem that was caused by the person's behavior is alleviated. If they broke something, it still needs to be fixed. If they missed an opportunity, that event, that positive thing didn't occur. So whatever you could have accomplished by lighting Shabbos candles on time, if you missed it, it was missed. You can't go back and do it. It doesn't matter how much Hashem forgives you. But if you've broken something about the sanctity of Shabbos, the purity of your soul, by transgressing and lighting candles on Shabbos, God forbid, that can be healed, that can be corrected. Does that make sense? So it's actually because of the, the severity of a positive mitzvah that it cannot be done after the opportunity is gone that there's no reason to wait for Yom Kippur. Hashem just, if you're no longer rebellious, you're no longer rejecting Hashem's place in your life, then Hashem forgives you and you move on. But the opportunity, the opportunity was missed. And that's what our sages say is that there are mitzvahs there are, sorry, there are sins that you cannot go back and fix, like a man neglecting to say Shema at the proper time or other mitzvahs like that. Once the opportunity is gone, it's gone. But a negative mitzvah, the spiritual damage can be healed, can be cleansed. And so it turns out that negative mitzvahs are not nearly as serious as positive mitzvahs. But they just have a, that consequence that the, f- the correction that's available is not something that happens right away with your truth, but has to wait until Yom Kippur. This also explains another important rule in Judaism. If you have two mitzvahs, a positive mitzvah and a negative mitzvah, and all things are equal, now meaning there can be other halacha complications which makes this rule not applicable. We're getting more of that. We're just take standard positive mitzvah to standard negative mitzvah. And you cannot fulfill both because they are mutually exclusive. So the example that I'm going to use is a kohen. Kohen is someone of the priestly family. A coin is forbidden from coming into contact with a dead body. 
That's only the male kohanim, not female kohanim. Um, this creates all sorts of restrictions because they can't touch a dead body, they can't go into a cemetery, they can't go into a building that houses a dead body, such as a, what kind of buildings house dead bodies? What more common building houses dead bodies? Hospitals. Kohanim going to hospitals becomes a whole interesting halacha question. Um, for instance, and this is not a ruling that I'm telling you that you know, if you marry a coin or your father's a coin, your brother's a coin, you have to tell them to do this. But there's a lot of factors going to it. When my wife gave birth, my wife is the daughter of a Kohen. My father-in-law asked if he could go visit my wife in the hospital and see the baby. And the rabbi said, no, you can wait the three days till your wife leaves. There's no reason to enter the hospital and risk violating the serious prohibition of coming into contact with a dead body by being under the same roof. Now, if there was a more medical reason, there's rooms for leniency, but it's a serious issue. It's for a Kohen to come into contact with a dead body they do, but the signs are not 100% because they put up the sign when somebody dies. But if you're already in the hospital, they don't inform you that someone has died. So it creates room for leniency, but you need to be justified in using the leniency. And the rabbi that he asked felt that this was not, you know, you can, you know, it's just for the added joy of seeing your wife and grandchild, you can, you can wait a few days. That, that's, it's not like you have a medical procedure that needs to be done. Okay. Not every rabbi would agree with that, that judgment. It's, just, it's an issue. For a Kohen to come into contact with a dead body is like for a regular Jew eating pork. It's the same level of severity of sin. Yeah? What if, what if their family member dies and they can't go to the funeral? They can't go to the funeral for legislation. So the Torah specifically says that a Kohen has to um, come into contact and go to the funeral in the cemetery of seven relatives. Um, and those are the mother, the father, son, daughter, brother, unmarried sister. You can ask me some other time why it's an unmarried sister, and spouse. Anyone else, it actually goes a whole interesting thing of how to arrange your funeral so that the, the Kohen does not come in contact with the dead body. So that's why often Kohen are buried near the edge of a cemetery where they can stand on the side of a fence, the more distant relatives, and things like that. There's boxes that you can walk in. Boxes you can walk in, which may or may not. There's a lot of complicated things. Here's the thing. There's also myths in the Torah to bury a dead body. Now, generally speaking, this is not a problem because the Kohen can say, well, somebody else can bury the dead body. But what if the Kohen is the only one who is able to bury the dead body? Let's say, for instance, you have somebody, say, a Chabad Shliach in the middle of nowhere, and he's the only Orthodox Jew, and a Jew dies, and so he's the only one who can deal with the burial, but he's also a Kohen. So now he can either do the positive mitzvah for burying this dead person, or he can do, keep the negative mitzvah of not coming to contact with that body, but he can't do both. And there is no third option. What should he do? What? Bury the body. Bury the body. Because we say as a general, all things being equal, positive mitzvahs override negative mitzvahs. Because a positive mitzvah is bringing something about that if that opportunity is missed. Okay? Whereas a negative mitzvah is simply making sure something doesn't get broken, which in theory can always be repaired. Okay. So positive mitzvahs are conceptually more serious, but they have this added consequence that the tshuva cleansing process doesn't complete right away. Simply when you do tshuva, it depends on your kipper, which is why it's a good idea to do you know, tshuva before your kipper. Does it make sense? Okay. Will he need to regret the body? Would he what? No, so the rule is like this. Because the halacha tells him to transgress, it's no longer considered a transgression. It's like, you know, the only way to save someone's life is to cut a knife into them and, and, and do surgery. We don't consider that assault anymore, right? But if you have another option of saving a person's life other than cutting their body open, and you choose to cut their body open anyway, right, we call that medical malpractice or assault, and you 
pay money or go to jail for that. So. Make sense? All right. Now, Hasidus, based on certain Talmudic sayings and passages and, and ideas in Kabbalah, says that if a person does a very deep form of tshuva, we're going to have to talk about what regular tshuva is versus deep tshuva, but if you do a very deep form of tshuva, then even the missed opportunities can be filled in. So let's say you have a lit Shabbos candles and you do a deep tshuva, then what happens? Now it's like you did, now it's like you, all the Shabbos candles that you missed, it's like you actually lit those Shabbos candles. Which sounds nice, right? I want you to imagine the following. I want you to imagine that you are given a task that is objectively important. I don't know, it could be, um, I don't know, something, helping someone medically, it could be preparing paperwork for an important thing, whatever. There's something that's objectively important that get done, and you have been given that task. And you fail to accomplish that task. Okay. And someone comes to you after the fact and says, you know what? I see that it really bothers you. You didn't accomplish the task. So I'm going to pretend. I'm going to consider as if you did. Does that make you feel better or worse? There's an objective reality that you didn't do this thing. It didn't get done. And they're going to say, but I'm going to pretend in my relationship with you as if you did do it. Worse. Why? Guilt. Yeah. So you, <laughs> the thing didn't get done, right? Right? And then there's like there's almost this like like, I would put it like, you make the person feel guilty, and then on top of that, you're like saying, like, I don't think you can handle the sense of responsibility for your own failures, so let's just pretend. It's belittling. It's, 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 it's rubbing it in your face. So do you really want Hashem to say, oh, I see you're really sincere in your tshuva. We'll pretend you did the mitzvah. If you, if you really take a relationship with Hashem seriously, that doesn't sound positive. And that will be the topic of our class. The topic of our class is how... Is it possible to say in a genuine way that tshuva after the fact rewrites the past and makes it like you actually did the mitzvahs? Not that Hashem is just placating your sense of insecurity. So. What is tshuva? That's going to be question one. No. Return? Return, but I want to go a little bit clear with what, we, what that means. And then what is going to be deep tshuva in contrast to just regular tshuva? Okay. Once we have that, we're going to talk about the, what Hashem's forgiveness is and the difference between Hashem's regular forgiveness for regular tshuva versus His deep forgiveness for deep tshuva. Right? There's this idea of its corresponding. Once we finish that, we're going to talk about what mitzvahs are. And then we'll understand how the deep forgiveness that we elicit from Hashem through deep tshuva actually can be a genuine replacement for the mitzvahs we failed to do. At least in some respect, if not in all respects. Okay. So what is tshuva? Tshuva is by far, at least conceptual. What? No, we're, talking, we're going to focus on positive mitzvahs. That when you do, when you do deep tshuva... It's as if you did the positive mitzvahs that you missed. And the question is, how could that be? So don't understand what tshuva is in general, what deep tshuva is. 
what Hashem's regular forgiveness is versus the deep forgiveness that comes in response to deep tshuva and how deep forgiveness is not pretending you did the mitzvah but actually is a genuine replacement at least in some sense for the mitzvahs that you failed to do. So we're focusing on the positive mitzvahs we failed to do in our life, not the negative ones we've transgressed. That's pretty straightforward. You do tshuva, Hashem forgives you, Yom Kippur cleans the sins away, move on in life. Hopefully. Good? Tshuva is the easiest mitzvah to do. Conceptually. Why? Because the only mitzvah that the desire to do the mitzvah is in fact the actual mitzvah. If you desire to light Shabbos candles, it is not necessarily true that you have actually fulfilled the mitzvah of lighting Shabbos candles, right? You could miss the time, discover you don't have candles, um, the matches don't, you know, are all soaked in water, who knows what, right? There's all sorts of practical obstacles between the desire to perform the mitzvah and the actual fulfillment of the mitzvah. Yes? Um, last night I went to buy myself an esrog because I, when it comes to sukkahs, I'm going to want to do the mitzvah of the lulav and the esrog. And I'm going to need an actual esrog because my desire to do the mitzvah doesn't count as actually doing the mitzvah. Which is kind of how it works. But the mitzvah of tshuva, if you desire to do tshuva, voila, you've just done tshuva. That's a, this is pretty simple. Why? What is the mitzvah of tshuva? The mitzvah of tshuva in its essence is the decision to not sin. To not transgress the will of God. So, at the moment when you say, I don't want to transgress the will of God, guess what you've just done, at least in that moment. Emphasis on the word moment. You did because you said God. That's what? What? You did because you said God. That's a sin. That's not a sin, actually. It's not a sin. No. I give up in your class. Don't give up. Don't give up. It's fun. Okay, if it's fun, I'm not going to object. If you're having a good time, who am I to deprive you of your fun? I'll leave that up to the Almighty. <laughs> okay. If a person says to themselves, I no longer want to sin. I no longer want to transgress the will of God. I no longer want to throw him out of my life. Yeah? At that very moment, what have they done in that moment for that moment? They've made a decision to no longer sin. Now, there's a separate question, which is how long does that last? How long does that last usually? What? Making that decision and that's the sin part? No, that's the, that's the tshuva part. That's the tshuva part. How long does that generally last? Five seconds. That's right. Huh. Okay. But guess what? You just did the mitzvah of tshuva. And then, you know, if 10 minutes later you sin, and then you, you make that decision again and feel that way again, guess what you just did again? Tshuva is actually very easy mitzvah to do. What's difficult, by the way, is lasting tshuva. Lasting tshuva is hard. Um, does anyone here like camping? You like camping. Um, the whole like making a campfire thing? Canoeing all the time, yeah. Okay, well we're going to focus on the campfire part. Okay. The canoeing is going to be actually detrimental because we want to talk about fire. Canoes have water and they don't mix well. So making a spark is not, is not the difficult part um, in making a campfire. Um, right. But getting the spark to catch and then growing it into a stable living flame, that's the hard part. So tshuva is like, like fire. So the spark is fire. It's just very, very small, short-lived fire. If you have the sense, you know what? I, I want to take this, this Shem, Torah, Mitzvah thing seriously. At that moment, you just did tshuva. At that moment, voila. The problem is 
How long does that last? Okay. So that's a question. How do you make tshuva last? Okay. There was a man named Yishmo. Yishmo was the first son of Avraham, our forefather. And Yishmo was not a good person. He was a very, very bad person, actually. How bad was he? Well, how bad do you have to be if God says you should get kicked out of your parents' house? That's pretty bad, right? Okay. And he was dying in the desert because he didn't have enough water. And as often is the case when people are you know, facing you know, the real truth of their mortality, he returns to Hashem and he's like, you know, I regret my evil ways and I want to do what's right and all that fun stuff. Right? At that point, um, the verse says that Hashem saw him where he was at, Basher Husham, where he was at. And our sages say, well, I mean, obviously you don't see somewhere where they're not, right? You can't like look over there and see me. You have to see me where I'm at. So what's the superfluous phrase meant to teach us? And the idea is they say that the angels were objecting and saying, God, you can't accept his tshuva because you know as soon as you provide him with water and he goes back to being um, healthy and you know, um, vigorous, he's going to return to his evil ways. So you shouldn't accept his tshuva. You should, you should continue to um, reject him. And Hashem asks the angel, says, right now, at this moment, is he sincere? And the angels say, yes. And Hashem says, I see him where he is at. So if at that moment you're sincere, then Hashem forgives you. It's very simple. And of course, the trick is how do you keep with that and live with that? But that's not the topic of today's class. So the idea is basically regular tshuva is the decision in the moment and hopefully lasting, but not necessarily, to live as Hashem wants me to live. And the forgiveness is as simple as that, that Hashem accepts that in the moment and doesn't hold things against you and... As they say, let bygones be bygones, not get hung up in the past. Does that make sense? So once you've done shuva and Hashem has forgiven you, is He going to punish you? What? If you stop there, you do shuva, Hashem forgives you, is there any reason for Him to punish you at that point? No. Does that mean the harmful effects of the sin have been erased? No. So on Yom Kippur, what does Hashem do? Assuming you're still in a state of tshuva and Hashem is still forgiving you, right? Which is why it's a good idea to do tshuva right before Yom Kippur gets in. Since he he's, doesn't have anything against you and he's a decent kind of guy, it's like, well, I mean, if you have like, some spiritual problems and need some spiritual surgery, I don't mind doing that for you. And he fixes up whatever got messed up through the sin. That makes sense? So the forgiveness is very much like the tshuva. The tshuva is... I no longer am going to turn my back to Hashem. Hashem's like, I'm not going to turn my back to you. So if you need my help, I'll help you. No problem. Good? What's deep tshuva? Now, I want to be there. Deep tshuva is not the same thing as long-term tshuva. You could do the tshuva I just described, and it could be lasting. You can make that decision in such a way that it really transforms how you live your life and if it continues to affect that, that, that decision continues to affect how you live your life for years and decades onwards. Or you can make that decision in a way that it lasts only a moment. But that's a quantitative issue. Fundamentally, what's that truva? That truva is no longer turning your back to Hashem. And the response of Hashem is He's not turning your back to you. So there's no hard feelings, there's forgiveness. Comes along Yom Kippur, He has no problem helping you out and spiritually cleansing you, and fine. Deep truva is something else entirely. Okay, I'm on this. Um... 
just with this, your the effect of your avera is removed. No, no, Hashem is no. The effect has not been removed. That Hashem will remove the effect of your avera of your sin on Yom Kippur. Why? Because he has no hard feelings against you. Why? Because he's forgiving you. That can come from just a basic. That's a basic level of truth. Yep. Which is why Yom Kippur. It's a good idea to make sure you enter Yom Kippur having already done. Tshuva. What does tshuva mean? The decision that you're going to live your life the way Hashem wants you to. Okay. And by the way, if you ever go through the Yom Kippur prayers, you notice that we do a lot of confessing of our sins. Do you know why we do that? Like the simple, like halachic reason for doing that? No. No, why do we have to keep doing it? We, 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 we confess our sins in the, the Mincha prayer before Yom Kippur. We confess our sins again at the evening prayers of Yom Kippur, again in the evening prayers, then in the morning prayers, then again in the morning prayers, then in the Musaf prayer, then in the Musaf prayer, then in the afternoon prayer, then in the afternoon prayer, then in the Elah, and again in the Elah, for a total of 11 times. It's a lot of confession. And it's repetitive, it's the same confession. Chassidus has deeper mystical reasons, but the simple halachic reason is, what do we say? Hashem will cleanse your sins, assuming that you've done Teshuvah, what is Teshuvah, the decision? To live from now on as Hashem wants. And if that decision lasts a moment, then in that moment He forgives you, right? If afterwards you fall away from that, that's a, that's a new discussion, right? So you did Teshuvah, and you're supposed to come into Yom Kippur having done Teshuvah. So the last prayer before Yom Kippur, Mincha, we do Teshuvah, and part of Teshuvah, ideally, although not required, but ideally is confession of sins, topic for another time. Okay, so you're good. You enter Yom Kippur, you've done Teshuvah, and now Hashem will cleanse your sins. What's the problem? Between Mincha and the evening prayers, what might you have done? Sin. A little sin. So should you do Tshuva again? Yeah. Okay. So every time, on the slight chance that maybe you fell away from your Tshuva, what do we say you should do? Do Tshuva again. So that you finish Yom Kippur in what state? In a state of, right, in a state of forgiveness where Hashem cleanses your sins. In other words, on the very simple level, the idea is that maybe, you know, you could do tshuva and then fall back from it. And we don't want to, we don't want to come through Yom Kippur having failed and missed that opportunity. Is this why some people also won't speak on Yom Kippur? Like, so um, you have to ask each person why they don't speak. The vast majority of people who don't speak on Yom Kippur are because they feel like if they feel holier than other people, it makes them feel like they're more Yom Kippur-like. Mm-hmm. There's a small minority of people who don't speak on Yom Kippur to help them focus. And there's a much smaller minority of people who are emotionally not in a place where they can speak. I've yet to meet such people, but I know I have heard of such people. Um, but most people are not speaking is because they're holier, holier than thou thing. They have to turn over holy mode because it's a kipper. It is. That's right. There's an old, there's an old Hasidic uh, story about somebody who was deep in prayer and people had the sense that he was in these holier-than-thou modes. So they went over to him and they started like poking him. And he didn't respond, so they poked him again. They poked him again. And when they poked him the third time, he snapped at them. And they said, ah, so you still feel your physical existence. And he said, well, I didn't feel it the first three times. <laughs> you know, it's, like, you know, it's fine to like be in a state where you can't talk. It's also fine not to talk because you're genuinely trying to focus. But if it becomes a, say, so saying Yiddish a shtick, then like, you know, be normal. Yeah. All right. So, what is deep tshuva, though? Deep tshuva is something very, very different. (sighs) 
Why should you live your life the way Hashem wants you to live your life? I can decide I want something, I decide something that's important to me, I want to pursue it. How much I live up to it is, an, is another question, at least in the moment. That's, that's something that I feel that I'm committed to on some level. But then the question is why? Why should I want to live my life according to, to what Hashem wants? I mean, after all, He wants really weird things, right? Purpose. You know, $300 for a lemon. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Like, why? Purpose. Uh, purpose. Purpose. That's a good reason, right? Human beings need many things. One of the things that human beings need to thrive and flourish is a sense of purpose. And what is greater than, in giving you purpose than the creator of the cosmos? I mean, come on. That's like ultimate purpose, right? So aside from my need for purpose, I also get an ego boost too, by the way. I once had a student and he, he had a lot of hangups about different things. And I told him that he's extremely arrogant. And uh, I've known, known him for a while, so I, I can say that to him. I didn't say it to him in front of everybody. We were talking privately. I said, you're extremely arrogant. And he says, what do you mean? All I want to do is like, do what God wants. And I said, no, no, no. You want to feel like your purpose is of ultimate significance. And therefore, anything less than God is not entitled to give you a life's purpose. And so it's really just God is playing a role for you. Like you need purpose and you need your purpose to be like this grandiose thing. And so the only one big enough to provide you with purpose is God. And that's just creating all of your problems. Okay. What are other reasons to uh, live as God wants us to live? I'll mention one. You don't want to, you know, suffer in the afterlife. Generally bad idea. Can you come up with other reasons to live as God wants you to live? He knows what's best for you, right? Yeah. Okay. What else? Create a relationship with him. To create. Okay. So I want to interrogate that a little bit. Why should you want a relationship with God? Why should you want but that? Because we are in awe of him and we are his dwellers in his, in oh. his land, in his reality. Okay. Or to, what is it? What is it? Ten physical, metaphysical? Something. We are the dwellers in his land. That's place. right. So there is a way in which you can say that you want a relationship with Hashem because Hashem and you are actually in some sense already in the relationship. In other words, there's some sense that me being me involves him, him being him involves me, right? In other words, that the relationship with him is not a means to some other end. It's not like I want to have a good year, so I need a relationship with him. It's not like, I have a friend of mine who, who works in uh, local politics. That's not why he's my friend. But it is advantageous. <laughs> 
right? Which is fine, but you know, as long as you don't do anything illegal. But it is not a good idea to say, well, the reason he's my friend is so that I have some friend in local politics, right? That's not. So there's a lot of things that person doesn't want to be punished in the afterlife. They they want a sense of purpose. Um, you know, I'll give you they they, they they know that Hashem knows what's best for them. Um, they see that the way Hashem wants to live life meets certain fundamental things that people like stability, family, tradition, whatever it is. Ultimately, in all of those things, Hashem is being used as a means to something. But then there's this other thing you're describing is that we're kind of in an intrinsic bond. We're not like two separate islands. Um, or actually, I like to use this analogy. If you have two islands, how do you get across from one island to the next? The obvious thing is you take a boat, right? Or a plane. And if you take a boat or take a plane, you're reinforcing the idea that the two islands are actually separate. But there is the idea that if you were to dig down deep enough into one island, you would discover that are these two islands really two separate things? That the actual like earth itself is really one and just there's two different parts sticking out, right? So there's, they're, they're at their core the same thing, right? It's just that the connection point has been hidden. So this idea of that a person is returning to Hashem because I cannot be me without him. And I know that he cannot be him without me. And so Hashem doesn't become a means to an end in our life. He is the end. He is the fulfillment of our life. And we're the fulfillment of his in whatever way that would make sense for God. And if that's what's motivating my tshuva, my return to Hashem, my desire to live as he wants me to live is radically different than any of these other motivations. All these other motivations have an ulterior motive. All, therefore, all these other motivations mean I am, my investment in living as Hashem wants me to live is fundamentally limited. It's, it's, there's a cost-benefit analysis that is censoring how much, it's limiting how much I actually truly invested in this life that Hashem wants me to live. But if I'm returning to Hashem and I'm living this life because I want to be with Him, because that's the only way I can truly be me, and that's I know that for him, that's only he can truly be him, then my investment is limitless. Then it's just this ongoing uh, push and yearning that drives a person deeper and deeper into that connection. That's called deep tshuva. Tshuva is called umka deliba, from the depths of the heart, as opposed to tshuva that comes from a rational understanding that it's ultimately in my interest for what any of these aforementioned reasons to live as Hashem wants me to live. Now, most of the time when we do tshuva, what is our conscious experience of tshuva? The depths of our heart or we have some realization that's probably your interest that will help me feel more meaningful, you know, good year. Which one is it? The latter. And so what kind of forgiveness are we getting from Hashem? If you're on board, I'm on board with you. No hard feelings. Let's move on. Okay. But what kind of forgiveness comes about if we do tshuva in that way that comes from the depths? That forgiveness is a very different kind of forgiveness. So, we have to understand a little bit. What exactly is the forgiveness that Hashem is granting us Hashem is sharing with us when we return to Him from that depth. So I want to use the following analogy. Okay. 
it says that when Avraham was given the task, the mission of sacrificing his son Yitzchak, that he got up early in the morning and he saddled his donkey. Familiar with this expression? Okay. Why did he saddle his donkey? Right. In other words, it would be wrong for Avram to saddle donkey. Because you have to understand, Avram should not be saddling his donkey. Why shouldn't Avram be saddling his donkey? Because he's rich. Okay. Let's go a little bit deeper. You're, you're, you're right. He's because, rich. But the rich is not like... Because he needs to do the mitzvah himself. No, no. Why, I want to know why he shouldn't be saddling Oh, why well, he shouldn't be. Yeah. Rich, I think, is a, it, it, it's, it's related to his being rich. But I want to go a little bit deeper because... Rich is a very external thing. Right. Right. It's 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 not just Avram is wealthy. Avram is Avram Avram is a person of a higher class. I mean, if we were to use different different terminology, we'd say he's nobility. He's royalty. And this activity is beneath him. Okay? And the thing is, what Rashi alludes to in that is, does Avram feel the activity is beneath him? In general, yes or no? He does. Because if he didn't feel the activity was generally beneath him, would there be anything special about this time him doing it? Okay? In other words, there's this sense that a person has, this is appropriate for me or inappropriate. I'll give you an interesting example. In Jewish law, there's a rule that if you find a lost object, you have to return it. Do you always have to return it or sometimes you're just allowed to leave it there? What? No, there's times you're allowed to just leave it there. One of the times you're allowed to leave it there is if it's beneath you to pick it up and carry it. Now, how do we tell if it's beneath you to pick, you up and pick it up and carry it? If you do it for yourself, right? So you imagine like there's, you know, um, and it's a little bit harder because we like to like have this, like we like try to create a sense of classless society. So you have to like, but imagine a person has the sense that like they're, they're, a, they're an aristocrat, right? They're not the kind of person who would ever be seen leading a sheep through the market. It's just like this. And they all of a sudden are walking through the market and they discover that one of their sheep and they somehow know it's their sheep has gotten out of the pen and belongs to them. And yet despite that, they can't bring themselves to take the sheep and carry it through the market. Why? Because how does that feel to them? It feels belittling. And they would rather forego the sheep than do this, what they see as degrading lower than their social stations. Okay? And if that's how you feel about your own sheep, if you find someone else's sheep, you don't have to, you know. Does that make sense? Okay. So how did Avram feel about saddling donkeys? He felt like it's beneath him. Avram would never saddle a donkey. Okay, now, maybe that like, threatens our understanding because we like to think of Avram Vita as like, this chill, nice guy, but that's, at least that's what Rashi is saying, is that, that Avram feels that he is an important, dignified, aristocratic, whatever word you'd like to use person, and this activity is beneath him. It's, de- it's, it's degrading. He would never do such a thing. And yet here he did it. Why? No, he's going to kill the son. Avram's thinking he's killing his son, so he's not doing it for the son. Why is he saddling the donkey? So what she said, I'm kind of 
Out of love. Now let's think about what kind of love, what does that love feel like? So imagine yourself, there are things that you would never do because they feel degrading, they feel demeaning. What would you kind of love would you have to feel to get yourself to do those things? Not to push yourself to those things. Because now he's not, he's not commanded to saddle the donkey, right? He could just as easily hold told one of his servants to saddle the donkey, right? But he gets up and rushes to saddle the donkey even though he feels it's totally beneath him. So what kind of love is he feeling that gets him to act that way? How would you describe that love? Transcends his sense of self. You mean it's like a very selfless love? Like it, it, it's stronger than what you hear about from self. It's stronger. Okay. By the way, is this dynamic have to always work with regard to God or could this happen in a purely selfish way too? What? Yeah. Like you could feel something is beneath you and then you really, really are into something entirely in a selfish way and yet that the intensity of that gets you totally out of hung up on how, who you think you are and what you're about and you end up acting in ways that are completely out of character, right? Yeah. Which, is that generally the way we, we feel when we feel about, um, say, siblings, the love we feel for siblings that generally have that kind of characteristic? Yeah. That you feel something, that you feel so much love that you, without being, not they're asking you to do something. not saying you're willing to do something when you're being asked. Because remember, this is a case where Avram wasn't asked, he wasn't asked to saddle a donkey. The saddling donkey was just something that happened. That you feel that kind of intensity and so you act completely out of character in ways that your sibling doesn't even need from you. Not you're willing to go out of your way for your sibling. That's not what I'm talking about. That generally doesn't happen with siblings. Like, I really like my siblings. You probably really like your siblings. If your siblings need your help, you're willing to help. Maybe in ways that are completely out of your character. But if they don't need your help, they haven't asked your help, then you generally, the love goes through the way we normally operate. Because yeah, it didn't matter, right? God didn't ask him to saddle the donkey. It's not a sign of his loyalty to God. It's not the sign of his obedience to God. It's a sign of how infatuated and obsessed and irrational he's being, right? What kind of love looks like that? where people act in completely out of character and undignified ways that's not required at all. What kind of love looks like that? The love you have for people that you've grown up with for the past 20 years and are good friends? I'm thinking You're thinking what? Dog. Let's, let's use human to human love. That, that I, I would agree with you, but maybe not for the same reasons, but we're going to go with human to human love. You know what kind of love has that characteristic? Romantic, romantic love. Because romantic love makes people stupid. That's what that's saying. And there's the same expression of the Talmud about this. That, that person is not being rational. Not just rational like cost-benefit. They're not being rational in the sense that the, the intensity is coming from a place deeper in themselves than their own self-image, their own sense of themselves. And so the person can act crazy. When the Rambam when Maimonides describes what is the proper way to love Hashem, he says the proper way to love Hashem is like someone who is lovesick and infatuated. And he gives the example of who is like that. Avraham. Okay. Now, that kind of a feeling is coming from 
a very deep and intense place in a person. Okay. So now, when Hashem forgives us with regular tshuva, does that forgiveness anything like the love that Avram Vinu felt towards Hashem? Does it have that kind of intensity, that irrationality, that that that? that making the person go completely out of character? Or is it this kind of mature, you know, no hard feelings. If, you, if, if you're willing to move on, I'm willing to move on. It's that, it's that second thing. But if you're turning to Hashem with a sense of, I need you in my life because my life is not complete without you. And I know that your life isn't complete without me. And that's what's motivating your tshuva. Where does Hashem's forgiveness feel like? Where is it coming from? It's very much like the love of Avram Avinu. It's this irrational outpouring of how enthusiastic and how meaningful and how important it is to Hashem to be with you. It's a very different kind of forgiveness. It's not a forgiveness of overlooking the problem. It's a forgiveness of being so enthralled with us, so engaged with us that the sin, the, the, the negative thing, is just no longer noticed. It's no longer relevant. Right? It's a passionate and intense returning of love, not a willingness to overlook the past. And you see how like the kind of tshuva that comes from the depths of the person would elicit a corresponding feeling back from Hashem. And so the person is kind of being irrational and, and saying, this is the thing I need at my core is to be with you. And Hashem's responding and saying, that's also true of me. That's the, that's the deeper forgiveness. On a practical level, what does that look like? I'll tell you a story. I heard this story from a rabbi who has said the story regarding a different idea, but the story is nonetheless good for this idea as well. The rabbi was giving a Tanya, he says, this rabbi says, he was giving a Tanya class in a Chabad house. And um, it was a rather advanced Tanya class. And someone started showing up, there was a gentleman who started showing up in this class. And it was clear that he was very, very intelligent, but he was rather a beginner when it came to you know, these kinds of topics. Judaism in general, Chassidus especially. And um, after one of the classes, he started schmoozing with him. And he asked him about himself, and it turns out this person was a scientist, I think maybe an engineer or a physicist, something in that regard. And so the rabbi makes a comment, so you must have like worked out your whole science, all the science and Torah questions if you're coming regularly to this class. Which is a comment, you know. And the person's response was, nope, I haven't worked out any of the science and Torah questions. And I don't care. I'm looking for God. In other words, are there conceptual questions of how to understand science and Torah and Hashem and how it fits together? And this is a person whose life, who's not just what he does to make money, but his career, part of his self-identity is making sense of the world in that kind of way, right? And yet he's come to a place where what does he feel he need? What does he feel he needs? He needs a sense of being close to Hashem in his life that makes him completely disregard how he normally is, how he normally functions, and he doesn't care. That's that. And so that person, whatever mitzvahs, whatever growth is coming from that place is which kind of tshuva? That's the deeper tshuva. I just, no, I understand why um, the, like, the violation of mitzvahs wouldn't hold any place. But I don't understand how they would be considered as if they were done. I know. I have 20 minutes left to talk about that. I said <laughs> that we're going to first talk about regular tshuva versus deep tshuva, regular forgiveness versus deep forgiveness. Then we're going to talk about what mitzvahs are and understand how the deeper forgiveness can replace mitzvahs at least in some respects, right? I am pacing myself. 
on a practical level, like if you want to do this deeper level, like what are you like? How do you do that? Like, is it about learning? Is it you have to figure out the things that are going to let you get in touch with deeper parts of yourself. So I can give you generic things, but ultimately part of it is a choice, part of it is an exploration, and part of it is a mystery. Part of being a choice, like if you don't want to get to this deeper part, you never will, regardless of any advice anyone gives you. Part of it is figuring out which path works for you, because generic things is just a general thing, it's not gonna be And part of it is that ultimately on some level there is a mystery, uh, you know, God, you know, helps people get to each place at the right time for them. You know, why did this uh, physicist or engineer wake up, you know, at age whatever it was, 37 or 47 as opposed to five years earlier or five years later? I don't know. Uh, but learning can definitely help if you're approaching the right. Praying can definitely help if you're approaching it the right way. Um, trying to share your enthusiasm for Judaism. There's lots of things that can help. But those are very generic. You have to explore and play around with that and have a genuine desire to get to that place. And there is no magic bullet. And as I like to say, there's no button on your back. You just push and then hold for three seconds and voila. Regular chew is a lot easier, right? You just realize that it's really not, not a good idea for any number of reasons to keep not living life the way God wants you to live. And, you know, good. I can say anything again. I don't know if it'll be the exact same wording, though. When a person writes in a future, so what, what comes to that A willingness not to, 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 to move on and not to hold the past against you. Oh, that was, I misunderstood you. That's the regular tshuva. No, it's that Hashem feels about the person the way Avram Venu felt. It's that kind of deep, intense passion. That, 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 there's a kind of irrational Hashem is enthralled with you and wants to connect you and so the past becomes, it just melts away and he's not relevant. It's not I'm overlooking the past. I'm ignoring the past because I'm a decent guy. No, it's not that. Um, now, so we have to talk about what a mitzvah is. So in Hasidus, mitzvahs are called the will of Hashem. You've heard this expression before, the will of Hashem? Will of God? The divine will? Okay, so I'm going to pick a mitzvah which is quite useful for illustrating this, and this is the mitzvah of tefillin. For those of you who don't know, tefillin is wrapping black leather boxes with black leather straps that have scrolls inside on the arm and head of Jewish men. It's weird. Like if you stand back and think about it, it's weird. I don't know if it's as weird as Lulav and Esther, but it's definitely weird. Now, what does it mean that that's the will of God? So you ask the regular person, I say the will of God is that God wants you to do it. It's like God has some sort of like leather obsession or something, I don't know. The actual way this is understood in Hasidus is that the will of God, which is the mitzvah, is not the actual tefillin. The black leather straps and boxes is not the mitzvah. The mitzvah is the will. What is the will? The will is that sense of being engaged, that sense of being interested, that sense of being driven towards something. So to give a very simple example, um, let's say, for argument's sake, I really like pistachio ice cream. I don't, but we'll use that as the analogy. Like, I'm obsessed with pistachio ice cream. It's the most... It speaks to me on so many levels. It does. And I'm teaching this class, everything's going well, and then someone walks in with a big tub of pistachio ice cream and sits in the corner eating it. 
What's going to happen to my interaction with you in my teaching? It's going to increase. It's going to improve or not, or it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Why? I mean, distracted because now my rutson, my will, my my ability to engage reality beyond myself is all getting directed towards the ice cream, right? When a child comes home and they and they and they, they have some sort of school project or something, and they show their parent, what do they want from their parent? They want their parent that kind of attention, that energy, that engagement. That makes sense? So that's what we mean. We talk about the, someone's will. We're talking about that aspect of their being. And so we have the sense that you are wherever your will is. Your will is your way of being with others, being engaged with, with, with something other than yourself. So what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is not something you do for Hashem. A mitzvah is Hashem's being with you, His engagement with you. So when I put on tefillin or you light Shabbos candles, the act we're doing is not the mitzvah. The act we're doing is the place where the mitzvah resides. The mitzvah is Hashem's engagement with us, Hashem's intention to us, Hashem's involvement with us. So when I put on tefillin, when you light a Shabbos candle, what's happening is that Hashem is focusing on you, being there with you, and your soul feels that and to agree to which you're sensitive to your soul, it has an effect on your actual lived experience. Just the same way when somebody you care about is really with you 100%, assuming you're in tune with that, you can feel that and it changes you, affects you. The activity or interaction that's the means by which that occurs is almost incidental. You know, is it, is it that you're, 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 you're chatting about the weather or, or, or you're seeing the project they did or you're just sitting there gazing at it? Like what those activities are that are the medium through which the will of one person reaches the other is really immaterial. It's that sense that, of one being in tune and connected and focused on the other. So the idea is that when we do a mitzvah, what we're really doing is we're creating a reality, we're creating a situation where Hashem's will, Hashem's desire, Hashem's focus can be channeled to us. Which, which is why the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, famously said, if God commanded us to chop wood, we would chop wood. Because what would that mean? That means in the act of wood chopping, what would be taking place? Hashem would be 100% focused on us. Hashem would 100% be with us. It's not about the wood chopping. Does that make sense? How do you know that you love somebody? Like really? No, there's people I hate and think about them too. That's just how you know the person has significance in your life. Doesn't mean it's love. You care about them. Well, care cannot be love. Care can be compassion. Care can be motivated by values. I could be a moral person. That's why I care for them, right? That could be service. I could feel a sense of loyalty and, 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 and that it's not the same thing as love. Love is a... So Hasidus actually is a very, very interesting metric for love, which is important when you get married and when you have children because it's important to have love. Not just service, not just respect, not just morals, but actual love. Do you enjoy doing things that you otherwise would not enjoy because they're involved? That's something that only takes place in love. I do not enjoy grocery shopping. I just don't. I don't like this one. It's not necessarily do partners continuously do things that their other partner likes. No, 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 no. I didn't say do. I didn't say do. I'm not talking about doing. 
Enjoy doing. Enjoy doing. But you don't enjoy it at all. That no no no. I didn't say I didn't say everything is love. It's just if this doesn't happen at all. In other words, if all the activities that you enjoy doing are these same activities whether this person is involved or not, and all the activities you don't enjoy doing are the same whether this person is involved or not, then this other person is someone that you can have all sorts of other attitudes towards. I might care for them. I might have compassion for them. I might value them. I might respect them. I might have a lot of other things. They're all very positive things. But love being the desire to be together changes the way you experience activities in life. So I don't like grocery shopping. And I mildly enjoy it when I do it with my wife. Not like it's the greatest activity of all time. But like if my choice is to like, I don't know, go grocery shopping or wash dishes, wash dishes. Grocery shopping with my wife and washing dishes, go shopping with my wife. And it's not just me better than washing dishes, grocery shopping with my wife versus a lot of other activities I'd rather do. Now, obviously, there can be other activities you enjoy doing. Same thing with children. How do you know that you love your children? Love in the sense of feeling love, not the essential love of every parent to a child, but like love that's actually experienced thing. Do you like playing with blocks? I don't like playing with blocks. But sometimes do I like playing with blocks? Not, and not always, but sometimes. And that's the times when the love is coming out. Now, it doesn't mean that that's the only manifestation of love, but that's something that only occurs with love. In other words, you know, something can have many manifestations, but other things can have those same manifestations, so you can't use that to tell, right? And that's actually, we say, how do we know that Hashem loves us? Because it doesn't make any sense that Hashem's will, Hashem's that, that, connective energy of Hashem should be channeled into something as banal as lighting candles and wrapping leather straps and waving around fruits and putting coins in boxes. Is that, that doesn't seem very godlike. But those are things that are very human. Human beings can do those things, right? So why does Hashem put His will into those activities? Because who's doing those activities? Who's engaged in those activities? We are. And so that's it. So the fact that the mitzvahs are physical is itself a manifestation of his love. Which means at the core, what is the mitzvah? The mitzvah was that, that connective energy, that, that energy of will and desire coming from Hashem, right? That's what the mitzvah is in its essence. The activity was just the channel which allows that to take place. But now, if I do tshuva in this deep way, and Hashem for, gives forgiveness, not in a way of like, I don't hold it against you, but this deep passion desire to be with us no matter what. Isn't that deep passion desire like the ultimate expression of his will, the ultimate expression of his desire? Isn't that the thing that underlies all mitzvahs? And so Hasidus gives this following analogy. If a riverbed dries up and you dig deep under the groundwater, normally, what will happen? The spring will come back up and will fill up the riverbed. If that energy, which underlies all mitzvahs, is brought out in full force, then it fills all the gaps and crevices in our lives that the mitzvahs were supposed to fill. So you miss this opportunity for togetherness. But the ultimate desire of Hashem to be with you is now being revealed and shared with you, so that fills it up. It's not Hashem's like, I'll consider it as if you did the mitzvah. It's not about doing the mitzvah. The closeness that you couldn't, that you didn't, or didn't achieve then 
is being given over in even a greater measure now that it fills the void from the past. And so in that sense, the mitzvah really has, it's as, this, the mitzvah was done. Now there is a sense in which the mitzvah has not been done, which we'll have to talk about. But the gap in the closeness that could have been achieved by having done the mitzvah can be filled up when Hashem is not saying, I'm going to overlook the past, but Hashem is so intense in his desire to be with us, his, that, 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 that yearning to reciprocate our yearning for him, that that positive energy fills up all the gaps that were supposed to have been filled up by those small revelations of Hashem's interest in us in the previous mitzvahs we failed to do. And so it's not Hashem is pretending. And by the way, this is something that you don't even need mysticism. If you think about it, if you have um, a, a relationship with somebody, and there's gaps, there's opportunities for closeness that were missed, and they feel like they're gaps. And you get to this kind of place where there's a deep, deep desire of each one for the other. At that moment, what is those gaps feel like they get filled up? Okay, so then what sense is the mitzvah still undone? There's, well, we have to explain what that means. There is a, another aspect of mitzvahs which mitzvahs refine the world. Mitzvahs make the world a better place. Does that get fixed up because of this? And that doesn't. In other words, if you imagine the following, imagine like, you know, uh, uh, two people, you know, you have to say a parent and a child. The parent had time to help the child with their homework. And that would have been beneficial for two reasons. One, it would have been a bonding experience and two, the child would do better in school, right? And they would know the material and they would have gotten great on the test. But instead, the child decided to blow off the parent. And they did it in a nasty way, even. And as the child matures, and the child realizes that the parent's important in their life, the child expresses a desire to really connect in a deep way, right? And that brings out in the parent that desire to connect in a deep way. That can fill the gap that was created from that missed opportunity, in the sense of closeness. But does that retroactively mean that now the parent tutored the child, and now the child got a good grade? No. And the consequences in like the, the, the physical world of not having gotten that good grade and maybe not gotten to that school and not getting that job, those are still there. So the part of a mitzvah, which is about our connection to Hashem, that can be healed, that can be filled in through the deep tshuva. But the part of the mitzvah, which is about rectifying the world, fixing the world, making the world a godly place, the missed opportunity is in fact a missed opportunity. So it's not a shame. oh, well, you, you really, really want to all pretend. There's no pretending. Pretending is, 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 is not being respectful of each other. So now, what do we do about the part of the mitzvah that we can't fix, we can't go back? The part of the world that could have been refined and elevated, made more godly, and it, and it wasn't. What are we supposed to do about that? Can you do anything about it? You can ask Hashem to take care of it. You can ask Hashem. And maybe Hashem will find a way to get that problem fixed. And maybe he won't. Okay? And this is an important thing. There is an idea. And I, I, I do want to say this. It's kind of the end of the Yom Kippur thing. There is an idea that people have. And I mentioned this before. That you can kind of reset everything through tshuva. And is that true? 
No, you can reset the quality of your relationship, the quality of connection. But the reality you're living in and the things you have to face don't go away because of tshuva. You have to come back to the same situation, same issues. And that means the desire for a person to say, well, I did tshuva, now it's like a, it's a clean state. It's a clean slate in, that, in one respect. But in another respect, it's not. And that's part of it. Notice, if, if your desire to do tshuva is being bolstered by the fact that you can like start over from scratch completely, in some sense, the tshuva is not legitimate. Because in some sense, what's the tshuva? The tshuva is escaping rather than returning. I don't want to face the reality of my life, so I'd rather escape to this fantasy world where I can start off from scratch. Okay? It comes from this like inability to face your own complexity, inability to see that you're not perfect. And, that, that, and if that's what's motivating, you're not, it's not really return to Hashem, it's an escape from your own, you, you know, your own desire for self-perfection. It's rooted in ego and it's not really gonna work. And so even this tshuva, we know that all of the positive mitzvahs that I failed to do can be filled in after the fact. We have to understand that if they're filled in after the fact in one respect, in another respect, the problem still remains. So when should your passiver stop haunting you? Never. As the verse says, "Bechatasi negdi summit, my sins are always before me. But the question is, they have to be before you in the proper way, in a way that doesn't hold you back, but you're not deluded about it. How is that knowledge effective if there's something you can do about it? Well, maybe it should make you humbler. We'll start there. You missed opportunities. You're not perfect. Right? You need to Hashem and therefore yourself to, to, to view you as someone who's flawed, right? There's a way in, right, that, that you carry with yourself a certain responsibility. And so you try to rectify to the best that you can. You ask Hashem to fill it in, right? You're extra cautious about next time. Maybe you're not so well. I could always do tshuva. Yeah, tshuva helps for certain things, but there's an aspect that can't be fixed through the tshuva. Right? When things don't go your way, you don't feel so upset because you know... you. The world isn't as it should be and you're partially to blame for that. There are positive elements of recognizing that some things just don't get fixed. But the word negdi means um, opposing me, like it's in, in my face, but it also means the idea that it's also, like not directly in my face, it's at a distance. Meaning there has to be an awareness of it, but in the proper measure. The desire to like wipe it all clean and start from scratch like you're a newborn baby, that's fantasy and that's not true. What do we say about how, like, what is compared to other It's the same thing. So it's not really that. There's an opportunity to rebuild your life and to change how you see yourself and to live differently. But if the choices you've made and the consequences in the world that they've led to. Can I give you a very, like, simple example? If a person... Um, made bad choices about romantic relationships before they got married. They carry with them the psychological effects of that into their marriage, whether they like it or not. No amount of tshuva will change that. Tshuva can change how they deal with that. Right? Somebody who, the, the first person of the opposite gender that they ever meet is the person they marry, has a different quality of marriage than somebody who doesn't. It's, it's going to be different. And you, no amount of tshuva will change that. And I don't mean to say one is better or one is worse even. I just mean it's going to be different. And you have to be honest about that. But tshuva can definitely change how you relate to that, how you see that, the place it has in your life, how you deal with those things. The world is not as good as it could have been if I didn't take the opportunities to fix it that I could have. And tshuva will not change that. 
It has to get fixed afterwards. Maybe I can do it. Maybe I can't. I have to ask Hashem to fix it. I have to send Hashem someone else to fix it. Give me an opportunity to fix it. But the quality of connection, how deep that connection is, that doesn't have to suffer because the gaps, those voids in being connected, those can be filled in. Because the, the will of Hashem, the and the desire of Hashem to be with us, which is the core of every mitzvah, even if it didn't come through one channel, if it comes through another channel and it comes even more intensely, it can fill in all the gaps and all the voids. So really, it's like if you repair that part, then hopefully you won't go back to where... Like, That's right. right. You won't go it's back just to... just hopefully. Well, I would no, say like not this... Not necessarily, because that connection... Like, I would say like this. Hopefully, in the sense that we always have free will, but it's not hopefully like it's just a hope. It's to the degree to which you really do that, relate to things this way is we, you were going to approach it differently. But it will still always be part of the story. It will still always, you don't get to erase that. You know, it's like, it, it's there. It's just a question of what context is it there. Uh, someone I know, a therapist, once used this context of therapy, but the idea holds true is that a couch in a closet is very big. But a couch in a wedding hall is not that big. It's not that the couch has changed size, but the room, right? So if your life is broad and deep and profound and positive, the negative choices that you have made and their real life irreversible consequences are entirely, experienced entirely differently because they're in a different context. But they don't disappear. That part of the, the same thing, the person I could have helped and didn't help wasn't helped. Doesn't matter how much truth I did. The spark in that piece of food that I could have elevated and doesn't elevated wasn't elevated, whatever that means. And so, yeah, there has to be an honesty of that together with the knowledge that in terms of the closeness and intimacy we have with Hashem, that can always be refilled up and even in greater measure through the depths of our truth and the depths of His corresponding forgiveness. So I think if you think about that, it helps put this notion that on, Rosh, on Yom Kippur we're really working on tshuva. What are we working for in the tshuva? Are we working that our tshuva should just be more lasting? Or we want our tshuva to be deeper? In other words, do we want more tshuva or a higher quality tshuva? It can be both. Those are not mutually exclusive, but the question is where do you want to put your priority? Because if you put, your, if you put it in the quality, the quantity will come. But if you put it in the quantity, the quality will not necessarily come. A deeper tshuva will necessarily be more lasting. But a more lasting tshuva is not necessarily a deeper tshuva. So I'll leave you with that. Um, tomorrow we will move on to the joyous times of sukkahs. And waving around citron fruits and all sorts of fun stuff like that. Just one question. Why would someone want that high up? Like, someone that's gone so far and kind of like the pastor and different things with it, you know, you prefer, like, why would they still want that really deep connection? Well, that's the idea. The real deep connection of something has to be something.